previously on the Redemption Podcast. One of the things I'll always remember is I, I know that I heard her last breath. That's one of the things that will always stay with me. This is the Redemption Podcast, brought to you by Westwood Westwood. And I'm Johnny Kovach. And I'm Ariella Kozen. On April 20th, 1993, 20-year-old Jason Clark stabbed Charlene Heinemann to death over a $40 drug debt. The murder was a culmination of the anger, loneliness, and abandonment that had been building up inside of him his entire life. We set up a phone call to speak with Dr. James Garbarino. He's a clinical psychologist who has 20 years of experience as an expert witness in murder cases. We wanted to better understand how someone who committed murder travels a path that leads from childhood innocence to lethal violence in adulthood. Can you explain how the experience of prolonged trauma in childhood can affect a person's ability to make, as you call it, good life choices? Well, the experience of trauma in childhood undermines the normal and necessary processes of assembling an effective brain that can regulate emotions and uh, process information and make good decisions. So. The terms that are usually used now are uh, affective regulation for the sort of emotional intelligence and executive function for the good decision making. Kids who are chronically traumatized, particularly in early childhood, uh, have difficulty developing these life skills. They're often plagued by emotional disconnection, which they use as a strategy for dealing with trauma. They're often plagued by uh, anger and rage that surprises even them sometimes because they've had to wrestle with overwhelming arousal that leads to trauma in the first place. If they were chronically traumatized in the first few years of life, they're likely to have a very wide range of difficulties and, uh, and damage that affects their ability to behave as responsible, effective uh, moral agents in adolescence and early adulthood. Uh, I often say that a good starting point with many killers is to view them as untreated, traumatized children who inhabit and control uh, adolescents and adult bodies and minds. In your book, Listening to Killers, you explain that people who commit murder are oftentimes frightened children. Well, when people have studied uh, aggressive behavior, um, there's sort of an interesting paradox. That if people in general are asked, what is the most violent and aggressive period in the human lifespan, they're likely to say in public opinion surveys, adolescence. But in fact, it's early childhood when aggression is most common among human beings. Something like 90% of boys, 80% of girls by age two and a half are engaging in very specific aggressive potentially violent behavior. If every 
two-and-a-half-year-old went to bed tonight and woke up tomorrow morning and was six foot three and weighed 220 pounds, by tomorrow night at dinner, most parents and early educators would be named as dead because when, when these now big, strong beings kicked, hit, bit, uh, punched, they would cause real damage. Jason was discarded by his parents, many foster homes, and then his adoptive parents. Is that common in these types of cases? The kind of experience that Jason had as he explained it, you know, he's likely to have issues with attachment. He's likely to have issues with what's called rejection sensitivity. So certainly that kind of background of being abandoned, rejected, uh, instability of care, all of those things raise the risk that somebody will end up in a situation where they end up doing violence to themselves or others. Jason was also on a three-day meth bender when he committed the crime. Can you elaborate on how that inhibited his ability to make the right choices? Well, I think there's two parts to the, the links between drug use, or substance abuse, and, and violence. One is that people who have long traumatic histories often engage in what's referred to as self-medication. And they get high because it's better than, you know, the sadness, the anger, the other, you know, hopelessness they may feel otherwise. But then being high, particularly something like meth, undermines any kind of uh, personal control, emotional control, and, and executive function, clear decision making. So it's, it's a very, very risky time. So you have a risky individual who's in a very risky state because of their substance abuse. And, and it's, it's not uncommon. Based on Jason's history, were there any other signs that he would eventually have a violent outburst, such as the one that occurred in 1993? Parental rejection accounts for about 25% of bad outcomes in children. Maternal rejection is, you know, the worst thing that can happen to you. Do you believe someone who has committed murder is redeemable? Yeah, in fact, the Supreme Court had this ruling in 2012, the Miller v. Alabama case. They ruled that it was unconstitutional to give mandatory life without parole sentences to juveniles who committed murders. And that has led to a series of other decisions to a whole bunch of guys who got life without parole as teenagers, mostly in the 1990s, to have resentencing hearings. And I think, you know, what, what happens is a couple of things. One, that it's not until age 25 or more that people have a mature brain. And so in a sense, until that point, they're not playing with a full deck. And you often see in their records that you get arrested at 16 or 17 and they're they don't really make much progress. In fact, they're often engaged in a lot of negative behavior in prison until they reach about 20, 25. And then over the next 10 years, they really engage in education, uh, spiritual development, uh, acts of service, and sort of rebuild themselves into somebody very different and very positive at age 36. 
According to the CDC, 15,809 murders are committed in the U.S. each year. To use Dr. Garbarino's phrase, Jason projected his own sensitivity rejection. His object was Charlene. Here, we return to the moments after that fatal stabbing. Frantic, Jason pushed Charlene to the passenger seat and took control of the wheel. As I was driving, I was going towards uh, Interstate 10. Uh, why there? Uh, you know, I grew up on Interstate 10, up and down it, and so I was just heading there, uh, just trying to get away. And as I was driving towards Interstate 10, uh, the car had started to run out of gas, and I pulled into a parking lot um, by Ford Park, and uh, I pulled in the parking lot, parked the car. I knew she was dead. There was nothing I could do. I grabbed some of her clothes out of the backseat of her car. She had all of her stuff in the car. She was living in her car at the time. And uh, I grabbed some of her clothes right here out of the backseat of her car and, and, and tried to cover her up and uh, uh, got out of the car and uh, started cutting through. This was back when Redlands was almost all orange groves and grapefruit, oranges and started cutting through orange groves, uh, stayed off the streets as much as I could. Did you still have the hunting knife on you? You can't go orange groves all the way, but you can for part of it. Uh, I was cutting across, there's an apartment complex there and there's an empty lot. And uh, cutting through that empty lot, I had taken the knife and I'd thrown it in, it kind of drops down into a ditch and there's tumbleweeds and trash and a bunch of stuff in there. And I had taken it and I'd thrown it in there. I just didn't want it no more. I, I had to get rid of it. He ran to the home of a fellow drug user, a woman named Pam. I actually told her I got in a fight with someone. And so she let me get cleaned up. I changed clothes and um, stayed there just really just long enough to do that. In the days following the murder, Jason knew two things. Keep moving and stay out of sight. That meant staying low and sticking to drainage ditches. In the blur of his adrenaline rush, he ended up at a house belonging to another old friend, a drug dealer named Jerry. Jerry had been planning a trip back east. He was planning on running some pot back to Massachusetts because it's really super expensive in Massachusetts. So I ended up going on a long road trip with him to Massachusetts just to get out of California. But Jason didn't think of staying on the East Coast permanently. The desire to keep a low profile didn't outweigh the longing to be close to people he knew. So he headed back to California.
Six weeks later, Jason was arrested. It was June 15th, 1993, the day after his 21st birthday. And how did they find you? I was staying at Jerry's quite a bit. Uh, and when they found out it was me, uh, they had gotten some information from somewhere that I was in that area. And they had actually contacted Jerry because I was, I was always in and out and all over the place. And they couldn't uh, really post up and wait for me to come back in two or three days or whatever. So they had contacted Jerry and... Uh, when he knew I was going to be there, he uh, wore wire, uh, had actually asked me about what happened, uh, and then uh, told me he had some business to do down in Redlands uh, if I wanted to go with him. And then uh, uh, we drove down to Redlands, and as soon as we got into the city of Redlands, uh, they pulled us over and arrested me. Jason wasn't upset. He didn't even resist. Instead, he felt a strange sense of peace. Can you tell us about your first night in the county jail? Um, first night in the county jail, as crazy as it sounds, was a relief after having been on the run for a couple months with the drugs and everything else to finally get in there was a relief. I don't know, I, I guess it sounds crazy to say decompress inside the county jail with a murder charge hanging over your head, but I was finally able to sit down and decompress a little bit, eat some food, get some sleep, start trying to uh, come to grips with or return to reality. But Jason's newfound zen had a shelf life. This was still jail. It was the surroundings that would ultimately dictate the culture. It's based on fear, intimidation, violence, gangs. And so I knew right away that I would have to pretty much make a name for myself, prove myself, and... That process started early on, and uh, I hate to say I, I just basically just immersed myself into I'm a convict now, and that's how I started living my life. This included defending what little he had left to his name. And a big thing was guys were... You know, there's nothing else to steal. Steal a guy's shoe. Guy has a nice pair of shoes. People try and steal it. So my first fight in county jail was to keep my shoes. His second fight was simply to stand up for himself. You put a couple hundred guys together like that, and you're just going to have problem after problem. And where were the guards when all of these altercations were happening? A lot of stuff happens that they don't see. There's, you know, blind spots, um, people going into other people's cells and, and fighting, stuff like that. With my shoes, that happened in the cell. With my second fight, that happened in the, in the day room by the showers. The, 
with the people I was fighting with were known gang members. And so, uh, and this happens a lot. You, you hear about it all the time in the newspaper and the news is, you know, guards letting things go on. You know, the, the inmates are running the asylum type of thing. So uh, my, my second one, they, they kind of uh, watched out of the corner of their eye but didn't get involved in it. Jason didn't deny the crime. He took a deal and pled guilty to second-degree murder in exchange for a sentence of 15 years to life. What advice did you receive transitioning from the county jail to state prison? Walk slow, drink lots of water. That was the first piece of advice. Um, the first time anybody gives you crap, just just go completely over the top because then everybody else knows, don't fuck with this dude is what it comes down to. If you take any crap from anybody when you first get there, then everybody's gonna think they could give you crap or take your stuff or do whatever they want. After spending a year in county jail and within 30 days of pleading out, Jason was shipped to CIM, Chino Institute for Men, in San Bernardino County. This was considered reception, which was simply a way station until he could be moved to Sentinella State Prison to serve his time. How the Department of Corrections determined which prison you ended up at? As Jason told us, whichever had an open bed. Tell us about the prison culture. Politics in prison are all based off race. The Hispanics run with the Hispanics, blacks run with the blacks, the whites run with the whites. Now, while the whites are, as a rule, um, governed by the Aryan Brotherhood, I never actually aligned myself with the Aryan Brotherhood, but I did uh, follow white politics and and enforce white politics uh, with uh, other inmates. so yeah, I align myself, you know, with the white naturally going in as white. Uh, I align myself with them, and and part of it was uh, go along to get along. Um, you know, that's the culture. That's what everybody's doing. If you rock the boat too much, then you're not going to be around very long. You had no other choice, right? That, that's basically what it comes down to. So when they moved me down there, I actually made, you know, met some people that, and they heard my situation just starting out a life sentence young. And so uh, I actually got schooled by some older convicts on how to conduct myself and, and uh, what to expect. And so I actually was fortunate enough to be educated in the way of prison before I got there. He received an education in survival mode, and survival mode meant being the aggressor, provoke before being provoked, gain respect, instigate a fight to simply show you weren't afraid and that you wouldn't back down to anyone.
we had a guy on the yard. He'd been there for a little bit, um, and um, we call it pulling his covers. His covers were pulled as that he was a child molester. Uh, that's what he was in prison for, uh, actually molesting his own kids. This was actually pointed out to us by the guards at the time. Then uh, some of the, what we call shot callers or whatever, um, the guys in charge uh, set everything up and orchestrated to have him removed from the yard. So uh, the first opportunity I really had to prove myself, I, uh, me and another inmate uh, went into a cell and just beat the hell out of this dude. That's the only way I could describe it. Left him unconscious in the cell. Um, the way we justified it was, you know, we're giving this guy what, you know, society, you know, well back then, uh, you know, when he gets to prison, he'll get what he deserves. And we were the guys giving him what he deserved. And, and that's how I justified it. Um, now I look back and, you know, I watch the news every couple of weeks. Some guy gets out of prison for being wrongfully convicted or any number of things. So now I look back and realize I'm playing judge, jury, and executioner myself. You know, that's what we were all doing. Uh, and looking back, this is one of the things um, I came to realize later was that... One of the reasons we did this kind of stuff was to put someone below us. The fact of the matter is I was in prison for horrendous crime, same as this guy. And to make someone worse than me and then to punish them for it, to make myself feel better, um, you know, that's one of the, the, the factors in this. Jason beat the inmate so badly that he was charged with battery and transferred out to Corcoran State Prison, where he was sentenced to 15 months in the security housing unit, also known as the SHU, or solitary confinement. Detainees in the SHU spend 23 hours a day in a windowless 6 by 9 cell. And when they are let out to shower, they are put in waist and ankle chains. What were your feelings when you were in SHU? A lot of anger. I was still at the point uh, with myself where, I, you know, I, I still blamed everyone else for my problems. Uh, I was, you know, mad at the judge. I was mad at the DA for prosecuting. I was mad at the cops. I was still mad at my victim. And I blamed everybody else but me for all the stuff that was going on. You never went to the protective custody yard. Why? The main reason I never went into protective custody or, or what they call the S&Y, sensitive needs yard, was um, you hear a lot of rumors about it, and this was perpetrated by the cops and the other inmates. Um, and back then, it wasn't even sensitive needs. It was protective custody. and. Uh, at the time, there was only a couple of these type of yards in the whole system, and they were for the worst of the worst. Serial rapists, serial child molesters, uh, high-profile cases. Uh, uh, if there was a cop or somebody in law enforcement or the legal system that was in custody, they would be over there. Really just uh, a lot of the real scum in the system. So no one wanted to go over there for that. Uh, and there, you know, the, the, the rumors were probably greatly exaggerated about what it was like over there. And I think one of the reasons is, um, had I known that an, an SNY yard or PC yard was actually a place where you could go and program and, and 
try to do the things you need to do to better yourself, I would have went earlier. And I think a lot of guys would have, you know, probably would still today. Uh, actually, more are going today to be able to earn their freedom one way or another. So I, I think it was just a matter of keeping a stranglehold on the population and forcing people to exist on the, on the general population, the main line. Once out of the chute, the fighting didn't stop, but this time, the altercations weren't started by fellow detainees. They were instigated by the prison guards, and these brawls were known as the gladiator fights. They were done for entertainment, and participation wasn't optional. Inmates being put out on the yard um, to fight, orchestrated fights. And you knew they were orchestrated because when they did yard release, they would pick one cell, travel down the tier and pick another cell. They wouldn't release cells in order. They would be sure to put equal numbers of people out there to ensure that there was a fight. They made sure to put opposing races out there to make sure that there was a fight. They ran everything. Like I said, you did not come out of your cell without being completely cuffed and then escorted to the yard and then put out on the yard. And they would... For example, they would take me, put me on the yard, and they would go down to the next black cell and grab him and put him out in the yard. And then just to ensure that things went the way they wanted, they would either go get another white or black cell because neither neither side is gonna wait till they're outnumbered. If I look up and see that there's two more black inmates getting ready to come on the yard, I'm not gonna wait till it's three on one. I'm gonna go ahead and fight when it's one on one. Because of his size, the guards would bet against him. When he got the upper hand in a fight, he would get shot by wooden blocks to tip the balance. He eventually earned the nickname, Target. The reason for this was when these gladiator fights were going on, I would fight and fight and fight. Uh, until the officers started shooting with the wooden blocks. It's, it's basically a shotgun that shoots wooden blocks instead of lead bullets. I got scars all over my body from them. They, good ones or, or bad, depending on your viewpoint. Anyway, I'd been shot so many times after one particularly bad fight uh, that when they were bringing me back in through the day room area, it's not used as a day room, but it's still called the day room area, um, and I was just bleeding from different areas of my body from these wooden blocks that someone said I had looked like a target. The uh, nickname stuck from there on out, so that's the name I made for myself because I just continued to fight until that point. And, and quite frankly, um, even with all the madness going on, I, um, I understand I didn't give the guards any choice really but to have to shoot me with these with these block guns uh, because I wouldn't I wouldn't stop fighting until basically until I couldn't During the fights there were no rules anything was game For further protection Jason made a bow and arrow out of his favorite magazine National Geographic 
it's um it's a long process of wetting down paper with soap, rolling it up, rolling it tighter and tighter, taking the elastic from the waistband of your boxers and braiding it together and eventually making a bow and arrow out of it. It was just one of those things that added to the reputation that I was building for myself. That's basically the reputation I wanted. You know, do not mess with this guy. He doesn't, just straight up, he doesn't give a fuck. Next time on the Redemption Podcast. During the course of this riot, I was uh, stabbed and beaten. I was stabbed eight times. I left that yard in an ambulance to Pioneer's Medical Center. During the course of the riot, I'd been knocked down three times, and one of the things that I knew, it wasn't my first riot, but one of the things I knew in a riot was do not stay down, because people can kick a lot harder than they can punch. 